everything imaginable. The podcast for curious minds. And here's your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening in. Also, thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkavit, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, psychic, author, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And she is a tarot reader, eventual medium, and healer. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Stephen Gray, and he is the author of a bunch of books on cannabis and psychedelics. I think one is called like, How Psychedelics Can Save the World. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, you're welcome. So what got you interested in the topic of drugs and spirituality? Well, it's interesting you put them both in the same sentence because uh, I'll confess my age and my demographic niche, as it were. Um, so I came of age in the very end of the 1960s and the early 70s. And during that period, starting, well, it's, for some people, it started a little earlier, but uh, in the latter half of the 1960s and into the 1970s, there was an explosion of interest in both of those areas uh um in the in western culture um and when you say drugs in particular mm -hmm. psychedelic drugs and cannabis although lots of people got into some of the other you know quote unquote hard drugs or narcotics as well but but the real explosion the really interesting one from my point of view that was part of what we called the counterculture at the time um <clears throat> Uh, the pejorative term became hippies at some point, but really it was a, an attitude of being counter to the prevailing culture. And those, uh, those, so there was an explosion of interest in spirituality in particular, more than anything, Eastern, uh, Eastern Asian um, spirituality, like uh, from India, Japan, and so on, Buddhism, Hinduism, and the like. Although Christianity got into it you know, they joined the party as well on some right. certain respects. And the psychedelics came along at that point as well. Uh, they had obviously many of them had been around for thousands of years, uh, but there was an explosion of interest that started with people like Ken Kesey and, and Tim Leary and those in the early 60s and spread out into the wider uh, counterculture and culture in general in the late 1960s and early 70s. And I was interested in, in all of that at the time. Um, you know, as uh, as I like to say, sometimes uh, you know, I I felt a need to go to the repair shop, and uh, uh, both of those streams of uh, pursuit seemed promising. Hmm. So, like when you start, like you know, did you follow? Did you just start experimenting on your own? Did you follow like a guru like Ram Das or someone like that? How, how where did it go from there? 
Yeah, how long have you got? <laughs> um, uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, no, that's a good question, Gary. Uh, so, uh, well, let me start with this just for the fun of it. Uh, you know who Terrence McKenna is? Yeah. You know who Terrence McKenna yeah. yeah, okay. So Terrence was kind of like the psychedelic philosopher of the 80s and 90s, basically. Um, and uh, one of the things that he said was that he felt the 60s were, as he put it, misplayed. And the reason he said that was because the psychedelics have this potential to um, uh, sort of dismantle the habitual patterns and open you up to a wider truth or a, a truer truth, you might say. Uh, but that involves uh, what you might call a radical dismantling of this habitual pattern, uh, what you might call the ego, uh, um, you know, depending on how you define ego. But um, uh, and most people didn't want that. Most people were terrified of it. Uh, and so a lot of people were just happy to have escaped through a, a power, if it was a powerful psychedelic encounter, like a strong high dose, uh, without, you know, with all the, you know, with having had all the sort of the, 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 the bells and whistles and the colors and insights and all that, but not wanting, not, you know, not being afraid of the, of the true ego dissolution potential. So that was kind of a roundabout way of coming back to your question, which was that a lot of people, including myself, uh, had never heard of anything about to do with set and setting, which is now the sort of the common, commonly understood term uh, uh, for, you know, having a safe and effective experience with these substances, which is, you know, come in with an intention uh, and be prepared that way, uh, and also do them in the right kind of setting that's going to support that. And that's a huge question, which if you're interested in, we could talk about at some length later. But at the time, and this still applies today, obviously, with a lot of people, younger people in particular, you know, who tend to be a little bit wild and crazy and think that they're infallible, um, will take psilocybin mushrooms in just about any circumstance you can imagine. And we did that. Uh, at the time as well. Uh, so so there was a lot of experimenting, uh, a lot of it not particularly wise. I mean, you know, quite frankly, I had a couple of bad acid experiences, LSD mm -hmm. experiences because of the terrible situation that I, I did them in. Um, uh, however, um, there was, and you know, in terms of your other question about, you know, Ram Dass or whomever, although he wasn't that particular person wasn't gathering followers. <laughs> but uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, there was uh, this explosion of interest in Asian spirituality in particular. And so then there was this meme. I don't know if meme is quite rises to the occasion as a way to uh, define what was going on, but it was a it was a shared idea uh, long, long before social media could spread ideas in an instant um, that uh, particularly among the people who were interested in the spiritual side of the psychedelics, which wasn't everybody, um, but uh, it, I was one of those. There was this idea that, yes, maybe you had this experience of, you know, uh, you know, non-duality or oneness or divine love or the nature of reality altogether on a powerful psychedelic experience, but then what, you know? how does that going to serve you for the rest of your life and your spiritual growth? Because you still have to come back to washing the dishes and dealing with your partner and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So the answer for a lot of people was some kind of a spiritual practice. 
and uh, that could be anything but meditation in particular. Um, and so that gave rise to quite an increase in uh, communities practicing, having various kinds of spiritual practices going. And for me, that was Buddhism. That's what got my interest, Tibetan Buddhism in particular. And in particular, one teacher who caught my attention by uh, the name of Chugyam Trungpa, who was a Tibetan master who was being trained in Tibet to be the head of seven monasteries in Eastern Tibet until the Chinese came along and ruined everything, took over the country, and a lot of the lamas and monks and whatnot split at that point. Uh, including him, and he found his way to the West, and I just found him to be a brilliant teacher. And at the time, uh, the attitude in that particular community, and I think in general with these spiritual communities, was no psychedelics. Um, and so I left them for quite a while and, uh, and followed that path for about 15, 20 years until uh, encountering the work of Terence McKenna, who sort of put the spiritual and the psychedelic ideas back together again, um, pointing out that, you know, they had thousands of years histories, these psychedelic uh, or plant medicines, if you will, uh, in indigenous cultures and so on in particular. So that got me going again. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm just going to hit pause for one moment. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. All right, we're back. Sorry sure. about that. Yeah, no so problem. So I was just thinking, you know, my, my situation was similar to yours. Where I was young, I took like a careless approach to using psychedelics. Then I stopped for a long time, and I went into kind of Buddhism and meditation and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, you know, and you know, all of it was. I always had that curiosity about consciousness. I think that's what really started because I knew that that consciousness has something to do with why I'm having an experience. And when I was younger and I could switch my consciousness from one perspective to another, I found that really interesting, but I didn't know how to make use of it. I mean, I was just a, mm -hmm. a teenager experimenting with drugs because I wanted to party and escape, but I had no idea of how to use that for any benefit. Absolutely. And like, like now I can, I understand it. Um, but for you, like how, for you personally, like how does it, what, what are the benefits of, being able to do that, and why is switching this perspective such a profound experience? Oh, that's a very interesting question as well. Uh, before I uh, uh, make a stab at that question, uh, <laughs> could I just clarify the book that you mentioned, just in case some people don't get to the point in this mm -hmm. interview where they hear it come up again. The book itself is actually called How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, not just How Psychedelics Can Save the World. And right. it's a, cru a crucial difference from my point of view, because mm -hmm. I don't even really like the word save all that much, but or save <laughs> the world, but can help at least mm -hmm. puts it into perspective as one of the modalities and perhaps, perhaps the most powerful one, but certainly one of the modalities that can help quote unquote, save the world. And also I wanted to clarify that I'm not the author per se, I'm the editor of the book. There are 25 contributors to the book. Mm -hmm. I wrote an introduction, conclusion, and one or two other short uh, chapters. But anyway, I just wanted to clarify that. So okay, uh, now what was that question again? Uh, <laughs> I might have half forgotten it. Um, uh, yes, what are the benefits for oh, me personally yeah. and in general? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint that uh, in, in a very specific way. And 
what you might say a scientifically verifiable way, I guess you could say. Um, because how do you separate out one influence from another in your life, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is the challenge of uh, scientific uh, um, research studies altogether is, you know, how do you isolate uh, one factor and pinpoint that, you know, like if people that drink five cups of coffee a day compared to those who don't, well, what about, what about all the other factors that are involved in their life? That's what they try to separate out. So I, I can't say for a fact, but um, just taking a wild guess at the kind of influences that psychedelics have had for me was the most obvious one is open me up to a far bigger world. Uh, mm. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I mentioned that, uh, in, in my wayward youth, I was doing these substances in dubious circumstances, um, including going to, uh, one of the star Wars movies. That was this, that was one of the two worst things I ever did. Um, because <laughs> it was just too damn loud right. and intense, you know, like the philosophy of that, uh, of the, those films was, if one climax in a movie is good, then a hundred must be better. So let's turn up the, the visual and auditory volume to 11 from the beginning and keep it there. Anyway, um, enough about that. Uh, <laughs> I came upon a, a really interesting little book, which I actually still have in my bookshelves behind me here, uh, that was published in the early 70s called uh, Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment by a guy named Thaddeus Golas. You could probably still find copies around. It was it was in print until I don't know at least ten years ago, um, and his experience was was with LSD, and um, basically, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, what he was pointing out. Geez, now I kind of forgot where I was going that with that. I got carried away on my Star Wars analogy or you know, metaphor there. Um, uh, question is oh yeah how do they benefit you yeah okay so I, t I read that book and uh and so i decided to practice you know take take lsd in a in in a more appropriate set and setting with some degree of intention and um so i i i was alone a couple of other people knew i was doing this but i was up i, I was out in the country so i was in a cabin and it was a few hundred yards away from anybody else mm -hmm. um, on this land that I shared with a bunch of people back in the, in those days. That would have been around the mid, mid to late 70s. And um, I just meditated, basically sat on a chair. And uh, the, the, sort of the first thing that happened to me once the, the medicine's effects kicked in uh, was um, I started crying, uh, but in a joyful way. And the tears that I was crying were diamonds and they, and they came out into a pile so that I was sitting in this pile of diamonds. And then I felt um, compelled to go and lie down uh, on the, uh, on the mattress or whatever there in this cabin. And um, I, I died in a sense. Uh, um, like I felt myself, my body, uh, uh, opening up all the little blocks starting from the central chi point or whatever you want to call that mm -hmm. there in both directions. Everything was just letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go until it reached the top tip of my head and the tip of my toes. And then at that moment, everything let go and I sank into the bed, basically. Um, and that happened like six or seven times. So this was yet another kind of rambly way of saying that... Um, 
these substances, especially when you do them in safe and effective circumstances, settings, uh, and satin setting again, um, have the potential to show you they, they work in your brain in a way that opens up channels that were hitherto closed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this may seem like a tangent, but it's not. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's this, mag- I think it's MRI, magnetic imaging um, uh, <clears throat> uh, photos um, um, of the brain. Uh, and so, they sh- so that, like there's the one that I've seen uh, it, it's easily uh, uh, reach or searchable online. It shows kind of like, I guess, looking down at the top of a skull, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the, there's one here, which is the, the, the skull or brain on uh, in normal, you know, sober condition. And then this one on psilocybin. And so um, there's little lights around the perimeter uh, that are like different areas that are lighting up electrodes showing that there's action, there's electrical action in different points around the perimeter of this, but they're not particularly connecting. And then the brain on psilocybin shows all these connections between these different parts of the brain. So for whatever reason, and, you know, perhaps a little woo-woo to some people's minds, I would suggest, as and certainly not me alone suggesting this by any stretch, that there are spirits behind these plants and that they're here to help. They're, when we use them right, when we understand them right, and when we bring them, you know, the understandings back into the, quote, daily walk, then uh, they are here to benefit us. And so they're, they're, they're very simpatico with brain chemistry. You know, and we're talking about psilocybin, um, LSD would in, be included in that, ayahuasca, peyote in particular, and uh, San Pedro, also known as um, Huachuma cactus. Um, these are all, well, LSD is actually a semi-synthetic substance. The others that I just mentioned are all n- natural substances. Right. They're non-toxic for the most part. I mean, they do, you know, sometimes make you throw up, but that's clearing out the toxins that are in your system. Um, uh, Cannabis, for example, has no known uh, lethal dose, essentially. You know, know, you'd be so far gone from its effects long, long before it could ever (laughs) cause any toxicity, right? Um, uh, same with LSD and psilocybin, you'd have to eat a hell of a lot of this stuff before it ever became, uh, toxic, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, they're actually very simpatico with brain chemistry. They just open channels in the sense, right? Um, and, and, and so that, that begs, not, not begs the question, I guess it implies that, that what they're opening up to is what already exists in us as a potential which is essentially, as you know, I gather you would know, because you said you've studied Buddhism, is essentially what Buddhist teachings, maybe almost like the core teaching of Buddhism, you might say, is that we are um, at root, if you will, awake by nature. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something called reality. It's objective reality. It's not a position. It's not a belief. It's not a concept. If it's not, doesn't belong to any religion or anything. It's who we are when all the other stuff gets out of the way, so to speak. So the psychedelics kind of jet you into, potentially jet you into those places, which is again why, you know, there has to be a way to bring them back, to bring mm-hmm. those understandings and insights back. So the, the, the benefit may be one way of looking at it. I'm sure lots of people who have used these would put it differently and say other things that I can't, I'm not thinking of today. 
but um, the benefit among other things would be that they show you this larger reality, potentially. They show you that the world is made of, um, or that life in a sense is made of peace, that it's made of love, you know? Um, uh, <clears throat> the aforementioned Terence McKenna, um, apparently he, he died of a really virulent type of brain cancer at the uh, sort of tragically young age of about 52, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he was a man of many, many ideas. He was quite brilliant, but he was also very speculative about a lot of this stuff. You know, he speculated about the stoned ape theory and all these different things, you know, and about 2012 being a nexus point where everything mm -hmm. was going to change and so on and so on. So shortly before he died, I think it was within days even, but don't quote me on that. Um, there were some friends or a couple of people with him and he sat up in his bed. He had been kind of out of it, but he sat up in his bed and he said, psychedelics, they're not about all these ideas. They're about love, right? So um, potentially these substances can open you up to those kind of states that show you the true nature of reality. And the other thing that they can do, it's almost the same thing. It's like another angle of the same function that they have. Uh, by opening up channels, is they can um, show you truths about yourself and open up things that bring things to light that need to be brought to light. So people are using them for, you know, quote, healing in that sense, oftentimes, you know, they can show you where your wounds are, where your buried uh, wounds and fears and confusions are, and that kind of thing, bring those things to light. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's that's sort of one way of looking at what the potential benefits of these substances are, I would say. Do you think that, that like using psychedelics is sort of a, is like a shortcut to get what, where it would take for like, say 30 days of meditation you could do in one acid trip? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as far as I know, uh, and again, folks, don't take me as the ultimate authority on any of this stuff. It's just one person's experience. But I'm also pretty attuned to what others have said. I read a lot and, you know, I interview people myself uh, mm -hmm. on my YouTube channel and so on and so on. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting question and not really a simple answer to that, I don't think, because um, the no part is... There is no shortcut on one level, um, which is kind of what I was saying a little while ago, which is, yes, you can have this amazing experience, but just having that experience doesn't necessarily change the way you go through your daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, that's evident, you know, that that's, that's on the record as it were, you know, that you could, if you surveyed a million people, who had uh, very, very powerful psychedelic experiences, you would probably find, at least I would feel confident in saying that, you would certainly find that many of them didn't really change their lives that much in the long run. You know, they felt maybe inspired, maybe led, I mean, in the, in the best case in circumstances, it did. But in many situations, not necessarily, just having had the experience doesn't necessarily, uh, change your life in a dramatic way uh, for the long run. Um, so in that sense, they're not a shortcut because, it, because waking up, there's no such thing in a sense as a shortcut to waking up because you have to undo all these old knots and patterns. 
and they don't they don't get undone just by having a really powerful experience they can certainly change your perspective and mm -hmm. change your direction in life in really good ways really valuable ways but you still have to go back and as my old buddhist teacher said walk the walk of an elephant one step at a time paying attention to the thoughts that are coming up without going uh, narcissistic or navel gazing about it just being aware of your mind and how you tend to trick yourself and fool yourself and aware of the, pro the potential for pride and arrogance and egotism and uh, envy and jealousy and worry and fear and all that stuff that stuff doesn't go away i don't think uh, just because somebody had an amazing experience, you know. So in that sense, it's it's a daily walk, uh, and it's a long one. It's a long walk. So relax, breathe, pay attention, and just keep going. Um, uh, but again, on the, the, the so-called positive side of, of the yes side of that question, yes, they can, the insights that they bring in can be a signpost, you know, a, a something to work toward you might say um that can definitely change your perspective yeah. how do you siphon out though like what is the meaningful thoughts and experiences that a person has when they're under the influence of a psychedelic mm -hmm. versus something that's just paranoia running wild oh you're good that's another really good question Oh boy. Yeah. Well, if it's a, okay. So let's, let's go, let's go this way for the, for a moment then. <clears throat> um, there's a fellow I'd actually, you know, I read a lot of spiritual books, but there was a guy I never heard of until some trusted uh, person I know said, why don't you check out Vernon Howard? I'd never heard of the guy. Um, he wrote three or four books in the late sixties and early seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and apparently sold lots of them, not in the millions, but maybe in the hundreds of thousands or with a couple of them. So he has this book called The Mystic Path to Cosmic Power. And basically what he says uh, right off the bat, uh, to my recollection, it's been a while since I read it now, uh, in this book is, first of all, I know what I'm talking about. I, this is not belief. This is experience. Secondly, I've also, along with my actual experience, I've read pretty much all the mystics, and they all agree on one thing, which is that the um, if there's one thing that everybody needs to do to wake up, it's observe your thoughts neutrally, non-judgmentally. This is not again navel gazing; it's the opposite of navel gazing because you're not stewing mm -hmm. in them. You know, um, this kind of what the alcoholics talk about. My mom was in AA, you know, and. Uh, they say, you know, the stinking thinking, that's what they called it, stinking thinking, you know, where you just and you're just self analyzing and self doubting. And, and they also talk about uh, AA people said that the great I am, like everything becomes about you and all that sort of thing, right? Well, the, 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 the practice of neutrally, non judgmentally watching thoughts come up, that's meditation. That is the pure universal meditation. You don't have to be sitting down to do it. You can be doing it while you're walking to the store. Um, you can be doing it while you're eating your lunch or washing the dishes. And it's just like it's um, what uh, the uh, the well. There's a wonderful book uh, called uh, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. I talk about it all the time. It's one of my yeah, favorites. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he refers to one of one of the 
you, you probably remember that he talked a lot about, uh, he told stories about a lot of these amazing mystics. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I haven't come across this one now for about 40 years. So it's going to be a really loose recollection, but what the word, the phrase I remembered was maybe like some, you know, he, you know, maybe Yogananda asked him, you know, something and he said, he said, well, or, you know, how did you get to be so whatever, you know, awake or whatever? He said, an ongoing rigorous self-examination, which is what I was just talking about, right? So, um, and and then going back to Vernon Howard for a second, um, the idea of observing those thoughts is you don't take them seriously other than as thoughts right there and then, and you just look at them neutrally, like, it could be seemingly positive or seemingly negative, um, but you don't let them have a hold over you. And and they will, you know, they'll come back. But for the moment, you just learn, observe them. And then that gradually releases you from their power, from thinking that you are your thoughts, right? So right. especially right. negative thoughts, you know, you use the word paranoia. So anything that makes you feel like crap, um, you know, that... Um, sabotages you it lowers your self-esteem creates negativity in that sense creates pain and suffering you could this is what versus vernon howard again he says you know that is the voice of the false what he calls the false identity so again you just acknowledge it right you know and i and i i that's that's what i do i mean that's what i try to do that's kind of my my practice these days i don't sit down to meditate all that much anymore. I used to, but now maybe, I don't know, once or twice a week, I'll sit down for half an hour and I'll, I'll do a cannabis meditation on my own, usually once a week where I sit with it for a couple of hours. But otherwise I, I do my best, not always effectively, but I do my best to be aware of what's arising in my mind. Uh, without taking me away from being present to the situation. It just, it's not, again, a nasal, na navel gazing thing required to do that because it happens immediately, right? Uh, it's mm -hmm. sort of instantly where you suddenly go, oh, well, I'm worrying about this. Do, do I really need to worry about that? It's just a thought, right? You can release it. Um, mm -hmm. So, so, but your question also uh, hints at something really important in working with psychedelics i think too for some people anyway and that is don't necessarily believe the thoughts that come up in the psychedelic experience either right um <clears throat> there are this is a big question and i'm not all that experienced with uh, like contacting entities and things like that in these states but you know terence mckenna and other people have talked about this um there are all kinds of non-embodied uh, presences, you might say, that exist, you know, and they're by no means all wise. Um, and so uh, take everything, you know, with a, with a grain of salt, as it were, don't automatically believe just because some voice in your head while you're under the influence of ayahuasca or psilocybin says, um, dump your partner because that partner is not good for you. That can just be a reflection of your own ego, or it could even be, as I say, some kind of dubious entity that is, you know, it's like a trickster entity, a coyote entity or something, or a raven entity or whatever, you know, or a disturbed soul. Um, as kind of confirmation of that reality, by the way, uh, I have 
Um, I have done, I don't know, 30 or 35 uh, ceremonies with uh, this group. Uh, it's a, almost a worldwide religion now called Santo Daimi. Um, it's uh, referred to as a syncretic religion that um, uh, has a strong Christian influence, but is influenced also by um, uh, indigenous uh, worldviews mm -hmm. and practices. Um, and they use ayahuasca in their ceremonies. And they have not all streams of Santo Daimi do this, but one of the ones and the ones that I was involved in um, have works that they, they have two different words for them. One of them is illumination work. Uh, and on those particular, it's not for the whole ceremony. It would usually be if you're doing like an all day one with a major um, ceremony leader. Um, at a certain point in the day, in the you know, so this might be like a seven hour ceremony, something like that, or eight hours. And at a certain point, they have a body of hymns or songs that are meant uh, for these illumination work things. And um, uh, what they do is the people that are open to it, that are, they would generally be like the very experienced people, open themselves up to disturbed entities. And uh, so what happens when they start singing this little body of songs, this collection of particular hymns for this purpose, is that um, you'll see the, actually the first one of their meetings that I ever went to, it was quite bizarre because no one had told me anything about that this happens, you know. So this guy that I knew who was one of the old timers was sitting like two rows in front of me because you sit in chairs in these meetings. And, uh, you know, he'd been super calm. This was actually the second day. So I'd watched him in front of me for the whole first day can be mm -hmm. totally present and focused and relaxed and all this. And then in the middle of the second day, he suddenly starts to go, oh, you know, like his whole body goes contorted and he falls on the floor and he starts kind of yelling and all this. And then the ceremony leader, this woman who'd come all the way up from Brazil to Canada to lead this group for the weekend, goes over to him and sings a song to him. And then they give him a little tiny bit of the ayahuasca to drink, which they say is for the disturbed spirit. So what they're doing is supposedly opening themselves up because these spirits, they say, these disturbed souls are um, drawn to the light that's generated in these ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, and and so they're actually coming in hoping to be healed. And so supposedly the ayahuasca, the little bit of ayahuasca kind of gets to them on the psychic level or whatever, and they sing a song for them and so on. And then hopefully the idea anyway is, I've never experienced this directly myself, is that this person or this disturbed soul gets some relief or healing, right? So I just, the reason I told you that is because it, it, it indicates that there are all kinds of um, spirits, energies, entities all over the place um, that are not in uh, corporeal form at this time. And, and some of them may do appear, um, not to, I haven't experienced this, but lots of people that I've talked to have experienced this, where sometimes these dark energies come in, or they could, as I say, be tricksters, you know, so don't just necessarily believe it because you heard it in, uh, in you know, in an ayahuasca experience. Oh, and in fact, I want to add this to it too. Uh, you know, there are people in this kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, new age spirituality world or uh, whatever that will say, well, my guide told me, you know, um, this is not necessarily, you know, because of psychedelic or, you know, it's not like something that they necessarily heard on a psychedelic uh, encounter, mm -hmm. but they'll say, well, my guide told me. And, and I always think like, that's cheating, you know, because 
I don't know who your guide is, and I don't know, you know, how valid that is. But you say it as if it's a, uh, you know, a, a fait accompli or something, you know, that you can't argue with that person. Be, oh, I can't argue with your guide. So what am I supposed to say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think people need to be really aware of that, that uh, it's really about direct experience. This is, mm-hmm. as you would know, I think Gary, uh, you know, comes back potentially to sort of core Buddhist teachings, which is that... Yeah. You know, it's 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 what you experience when you're not thinking, you know, what you're opening yourself up to potentially in and, you know, the as the well, one of the great teachings that did come through Christianity, as far as I'm concerned, is the peace that passes all understanding, you know, that that's ultimately our our potential, our destiny is that we can land on, as my old Buddhist teacher said, uh, what is it's, it's not anything to do with our thoughts nothing mm-hmm. to do with our belief systems it's an experience and hopefully a continuing one at some point which i think then would be called enlightenment wow so that was a lot of answer <laughs> yeah 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 you got me going on that one yeah there's so there's so much meat on that bone i don't know how to start dissecting it oh well let's just meditate then <laughs> Fire up, but, um, a, do, fire up a fatty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, it is like, like I, I guess I didn't really realize it until we started talking about it. I remember when I was younger and I was smoking a lot of pot. And I was, uh-huh. and I was, I was smoking pot and all of a sudden I'd be like, there would be like, it was like my thoughts were like another person. It's like, mm. it was me and I was here in the present and then my thoughts were over here, you know, saying whatever, yep. you know, and and, I, and then, yeah, there was like this other part of me that's observing all of this happening. Yeah. You know, and that, and that observer part was like the non judgmental part. And then in Buddhism, yeah, they say, like, when I learned to meditate, you know, I, you know, there, my teacher told me that it was, that wasn't about stopping my thoughts. It was sitting there, recognizing them and letting them go and not engaging. And then mm-hmm. those gaps in between the thoughts that's the true reality exactly which is why um you know your question earlier that i rambled on about for so long about you know trusting the thoughts and the parent or you know and paranoia can come up mm-hmm. can come up those are all voices of the false identity in that sense right that the vernon howard thing and that the experience as you say is in the gap uh that you know the that wonderful uh persian 13th century persian mystic uh, rumi um, had lots of little lines about um, quieting the mind, like don't let your thoughts cover the moon of your heart, you know, and uh, silence is the language of God. All else is uh, poor translation. Um, you know, he had a lot of things to say like that, that basically this is, this is actually the most amazing thing in my mind. It's the, it's, it's the wonderful secret. It's the great open secret of life altogether, you know, and I'm, definitely still working on it, so to speak, mm-hmm. is that that's available to us as human beings. You know, that is our true nature, to be at peace. Uh, the Buddhist uh, uh, Sanskrit word for um, enlightenment is bodhicitta. It's a two-part word, bodhi meaning awake and chitta meaning mind, although chitta also mm-hmm. means heart, so mind and heart. So it's, it's also known as awakened heart. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, we all have that potential. And as Vernon says, the more you, the closer you get to it, the easier it becomes. So what we're really doing, you know, we're all doing this, hopefully, at least I'm doing it, um, is we're learning to trust the awakened state. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that came from my Buddhist teacher was that, um, you know, you might say there's a, a trajectory of the path, you know, from sort of, you know, what you might call beginning to end. So at the beginning, or sort of, you might even say pre-path pre or pre-practice pre or something, uh, you're only believing and trusting and functioning and leading your life based on beliefs, concepts, dogma, you know, it, thoughts, you know, that tell you what's true, not true, real, not real, good, mm -hmm. bad, fair, unfair, you know, doable for you and not doable for you, et cetera, et cetera, right? All these ideas that tell you who you are and what life is, is it's all um, virtual. It's all, you know, clouds, you might say. Um, and, the, and the path quality is gradually, I think, in almost every case, as I said earlier, you know, just having an enlightenment experience, experience of Satori or whatever, isn't going to cut it. You got to come back and do the grunt work for the rest of your life. But gradually learning to trust the awakened state to the point where eventually you just relax, you know, that there, in a sense, is no there there. There's nowhere to go. We're already here. We just have to open up to it. I say just <laughs> because it's you know, a huge challenge. It's the most difficult mm -hmm. thing in a way that one can do, I think. Um, uh, but uh, this is why I think it's so valuable to share information about this in general, to let people know that there is this potential. Um, and if I may um, uh, ramble for a bit longer, stop me at any point if you want. You know, uh, some, some one interview that I uh, interviewer that I worked with a while back, he said, Stephen, when I raise my finger like this, it's because I want to ask you a question. <laughs> so feel free to, you know, um, do something that indicates, you know, Stephen, take a break. I want to ask you another question. Um, but I would like to, in, uh, in the in, lead into the overarching uh, message of the book that we're talking about how psychedelics can help save the world, or that, you know, I think is the reason that you found out about me, I guess, um, which is that um, we have that potential and it's becoming more necessary than ever. Uh, and it's also more necessary than ever to share that, uh, principle or that reality that we are awake by nature and we can wake up um, because it's not like another way it is the way um, and again it's not about beliefs it's like no religion gets to own it no nobody gets to own it it's who we are when we can release all the stuff that stands in the way of it um, and the, the the disconnect from that that true nature has brought us to this crisis point. This is the kind of overarching issue that's addressed by these 25 contributors in the book. Psychedelics have an incredibly important role to play in that, but it's not about the psychedelics per se. It's about what they can do to help with this consciousness transformation. And so one thing that to me is extremely important about all this is that I 
you know, my sources and people that are contributing to the book, like Chris Bache, who I could tell you about, is an amazing guy who had all these visions of, of, that we are going into a death rebirth journey. We're already in it, you know. Um, an image that I like to sometimes use is um, uh, if you imagine a whirlpool or vortex in a body of water, mm-hmm. let's say you're in a, in a boat, you know, and you, you have a destination, you know, you're trying to get past this thing, but at some point you get caught into it. And at first it's, it's a wide circle and it's moving kind of slowly and it's not that um, magnetic in a sense, I guess. It's, you could maybe still kind of get out of it. But now you're caught into it and you, you get you're spiraling in closer and closer. And the closer you get, the more the, the more powerful the you know, the, the magnetism, as it were, uh, gets until it eventually pulls you right into it. Well, we're in there somewhere now as a species. Um, another metaphor uh, that's used by some of the, some of my informants, if you will, is uh, that we're in the birth canal right now, that we're in a birth canal process that what we're potentially, and this is really, from my point of view, the only reason for even talking about this stuff is where there's potentially a birth coming. And that would be, as Chris this mentioned, that I just mentioned, Chris Bay says, a birth of the future human, which is the awakened human. And um, idealistic as that sounds, my view is that if you don't have some even shaky tentative faith that that's a possibility, what might happen to you as an individual in these next decades is that um, you could get increasingly freaked out because I think what's happening, and again, this is not me, this is um, a whole bunch of people seeing this, including indigenous prophecies and so on, saying that we have come to this nexus point. We've come to the karmic comeuppance point for whatever number of reasons. And there needs to be for us to have a sustainable future for the generations to come, there needs to be this deep and widespread consciousness transformation. And it is possible. But if you don't have some idea that this is actually what's happening, this was predicted, this was inevitable, um, you can't go on with a dysfunctional, spiritually disconnected planet, planetary uh, activity forever. You know, if you're borrowing more than you're putting back, so to speak, it's got to have a, an end point or a limit, you know? And so I think what we're going through now is going to get more and more difficult on the material level. And if you don't have some idea that that could be, and hopefully is, um, the process, the, the death part of the death and rebirth process, then you could get increasingly fearful, anxious, depressed, despairing, you could be increasingly vulnerable to demagogues. I won't mention any names, but they're out there. Uh, one in your country, at least one in particular, that's uh, found those people. Um, mm-hmm. And there are others, of course, in other countries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's, there's a lot of danger. Um, just also just, I mean, for each individual's state of mind, but also for the cultures. Um, uh, if people don't have some understanding of what's actually going on now. Hmm. Yeah. So with you actually, do you, you think that we can do that? We, that we can become awakened that quickly. And the other thing I was thinking too, is, you know, 
from Buddhism and having taken the five precepts, one of the five precepts is not taking intoxicants. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, so I always wonder, like, like, does a psychedelic count as an intoxicant? Are they just talking about alcohol? Um, or is intention the whole key to it? Yeah, I think the latter. Yeah. Okay, so there were two different questions in yes, there. Um, I know. Uh, so let's let me see. I'll try to make sure I remember the precepts issue because I remember those mm -hmm. two. Um, and your the first one was, um, uh, do I actually believe that? Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a belief because it hasn't happened in a sense yet. Um, so I don't know. Um, however, my view is if you don't believe in as uh, the great um south of south african bishop desmond tutu once said in the possibility of possibility mm -hmm. then you're heading for despair and a lot of and people like i wish i had the quote right in front of me but for example noam chomsky has said something to the effect that hope and optimism aren't um frivolous um naive attitudes they're the attitudes you have to have if you're going to take any action because if you don't believe that things can get better, if you don't believe that there's a hope in this yeah, case, try. an awakening, mm -hmm. you're not going to participate. And essentially what we need is more and more people to wake up enough to participate, you know, to add in positive value and work toward um, changing structures at every level in, the, in these cultures, uh, in, you know, in human society um, in, in ways that are uh, what people would say back into balance, you know, you recreate a kind of a balance on this planet where we're no longer uh, desecrating more than we are, you know, growing or blossoming or whatever, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have to believe in that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, otherwise there's, you know, it's just what's the point, you know, nihilism or something. You know, my, uh, my old Buddhist teacher, uh, I, I don't know if I ever completely understood this, but um, he had two things that were sort of related. One was uh, teachings. One was um, uh, nihilism and eternalism um, as problems um, uh, of, mind, of, of mind states, right? So nihilism is that nothing matters, so I just do whatever the hell I want um, kind of idea and, you know, it's a cynical kind of an attitude and mm -hmm. a selfish attitude, right? Eternalism, on the other hand, is the delusion that um, everything's going to stay the same and you can just keep doing what you're doing forever and never make the changes that are needed to wake up, right? That's the sort of simplistic version of it, um, <clears throat> which is about the level that I understand it anyway. Um, and then there's uh, this related thing that he called the setting sun mentality. And the, to the extent that I understood him when he said that is that um, as a metaphor, the sun is always going down, like it's, things are, you know, falling apart, things are dying. So again, it doesn't matter. I'll just get what I can out of life kind of idea, mm -hmm. right? You know, um, as opposed to uh, what he calls um, the, um, the great eastern sun, which is always rising. So there's always fresh possibility, no matter what happened in the past, there's no matter how horrible your thoughts were or you know how difficult your situation has been in the past in this moment you have the potential to uh this 
you know, referring back to the ideas that I mentioned about Vernon Howard again, just observe, let go, and have what, again, the same Buddhist teacher called a fresh start in the mm -hmm. moment. So now, as far as the precepts issue, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, you know, <clears throat> who knows? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the, you know, the carved in stone authority here or anything. However, this is my take for what it's worth. I think it's dogma. I think it's um, it's dogma that says if if you're including the psychedelics in the in the quote intoxicants category. Um, uh, I don't know where it comes from or why it's in there, but I think uh, there it's based on lack of understanding. And, you know, from people who, you know, I don't mean to put these people down. They were probably very open and open-hearted and loving in certain respects. But I think they didn't necessarily experience these plant medicines in um, optimal circumstances. I mean, they didn't experience them at all. So they think they're shortcuts or quote unquote, artificial enlightenment or whatever. But the states that they open up, I mean, it's all in, 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 in you know, we're chemical beings, right? You know, um, if you're, if you have an enlightenment experience, <clears throat> a Satori experience, your brain chemistry is, is doing different things than when you are in your sort of normal state, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's with a medicine or not. Um, so there's no doubt that these medicines you know, people have studied this, you know, like really reliable people have done studies that they um, they have um, uh, asked questions of people who have had mystical experiences without psychedelics and those who have had mystical, you know, claimed to have had mystical experiences with psychedelics. And the descriptions are essentially the same. It's the same state because it's real, you know, it's mm -hmm. not a quote drug experience. Quoting our old reliable friend Terence McKenna again, not quoting him exactly, but mm -hmm. referring to him, uh, I like Terence's definition of drugs. And and again, this is something I read ten or fifteen years ago, so it may not be exactly correct word for word, but it I think is close enough. <laughs> which is that um, uh, a drug promotes unexamined habitual behavior. Something that he would call a drug promotes unexamined habitual behavior. Psychedelics don't do that in general. They, they um, uh, undercut or dissolve in, you know, when they're used properly, um, uh, habitual unexamined behavior. They show you these truths that are wider and deeper and more encompassing around those habitual patterns. Um, so uh, I don't consider them artificial or shortcuts in that sense. I, mm. they're, they're potentially sort of shock the monkey uh, you know, way of doing things. But again, you got to come back and work, you know, daily, you know, day to day sort of idea. Uh, anyway, so, um, uh, you know, they, again, I think show us what's possible, show us what's real potentially um, in ways that most of us wouldn't have experienced any other way. You know, most, most people, you know, I don't know. I haven't done the study on this. I don't know that anyone has, but you could meditate for 20 or 30 years and never have experiences even remotely like this. You know, like the openings that happen with these potentially, you know, some people who are really sensitive would, but um, a lot of people 
meditation will maybe help them be clearer, more mm -hmm. cheerful, more calm, etc. But they're not necessarily going to see into the nature of the universe or um, be blown away by overwhelming love uh, in that, you know, that can happen with these substances. I mean, I've, I've had experiences, and again, I, I acknowledge them as just experiences, but again, for their signposts to keep you on the path, you might say, you know, I've, I've had, I used to do a lot of peyote um, ceremonies with the Native American church people in uh, Washington state, mostly. And um, <clears throat> one time in particular that stands out, I, uh, um, usually there's something happening in the meetings. There, there, this, this song, these chant like songs go around the teepee and everybody takes turns singing them and leading them and all that. And they, they tend to take up most of the time. And sometimes they're, you know, uh, audible prayers happening where somebody is praying for something and so on. But this one particular meeting um, must have been summer because I think that it was getting late, and it, but it was still really early. So the medicine was still really powerful. It was maybe 4.35 in the morning. And for some reason, everything just took a lull. There was nothing going on. Everyone was just sitting still. And um, I just uh, sunk into, I guess you could say, this... Um, state of that I that I mentioned you know that I quoted Jesus to have supposedly said of the peace that passes all understanding it was like total calm total peace but it's not empty um, mm -hmm. it's not empty like say heroin uh, not that I've taken heroin but I've heard people describe that erases everything you know um, it's not an erasure it's an opening into this true nature or the what is state and um, and it's it's um, infused with uh, beauty or love, um, uh, but it's also just like deep peace, you know. Um, and so, if you have those experiences, and, and you know, and I've had other experiences with psychedelics where you just go, "Oh, right." Um, one of the contributors to the book, uh, um, uh, I forget who that was. Um, Oh, yeah, it was uh, Jamie Wheel. He, he said, um, he was quoting Anne Shulgin, who was the wife of Alexander Shulgin, who um, invented a number of interesting chemicals and reinvented, so to speak, MDMA, also AKA mm -hmm. ecstasy, back in the 70s. And um, Anne Shulgin said something to the effect of, um, I, the best way I can describe it is, uh, you know, when you have this sort of the ultimate experience on a psychedelic is it's coming home, right? So it's not an illusion. It's not, this is again, <laughs> my typically long-winded answer to your question about, you know, intoxicants and the, and the five precepts. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it all comes down to what you said at the end of that uh, question, which was intention and, um, you know, doing them in the right kinds of circumstances, which is a, also a, an important um, area of discussion at some point, not necessarily today if you don't want to go there, but um, what is an appropriate setting is is another important question in my mind. Um, and so and what is that? Like, 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 does it have to be done in a ceremony? Is it something like you can, you know, be home by yourself and and, and you know, smoke a joint, and meditate? Well, I smoke a joint and meditate. Um, well, cannabis is kind of in its own category in that mm -hmm. way. I do consider it a psychedelic, although it's not technically a psychedelic. 
um, in the uh, narrow definition of what a psychedelic is, um, I, if I got this right, it's something that acts on the 5-HT2A receptor system. Um, and psilocybin does that, peyote does that, LSD does that, um, I think ayahuasca does that. Some of these things are in the tryptamine hallucinogen category. Um, <clears throat> Uh, cannabis doesn't act on, as far as I know, um, no, it doesn't uh, act mm -hmm. on the 5-HT2A receptor system. It acts on the endocannabinoid system. Um, uh, and it's considered an exo or e e external uh, um, cannabinoid. Total, very, very simpatico with our, with our minds and bodies, by the way. Um, so um, cannabis too, I call it a psychedelic and others do because it... What does the word psychedelic actually mean? Well, it's Greek root or etymological um, uh, origin in Greek is uh, psyche or mind or soul mm -hmm. um, and delic meaning open somehow or manifesting. So psychedelic is, means soul manifesting or mind manifesting. And cannabis definitely has that potential and can be much more powerful than a lot of people realize if you do it in certain kinds of circumstances. Um, uh, but it does it in a very gentle way. So, uh, I mean, it can be re super powerful and not necessarily gentle, <laughs> actually, especially or you know when you take it orally. But um, if you can open up to it, um, like if you can uh, quiet your mind enough of the time and breathe and relax into it, cannabis can also um invite you you might say into this uh state of calm open heart open heart you know awakened heart i've experienced that um and many people have actually uh, who have used cannabis with that kind of respect with that kind of intention as a spiritual ally um so yes cannabis can be done alone that way um uh it, it, it comes down to the tricky question of how well do you know yourself? How well uh, do you know what you're capable of? Um, I, I think it can be risky business to take a psych, a, you know, one of the quote unquote stronger psychedelics alone. Um, although certainly people do and have had amazing experiences, no doubt, no question. Um, but it's also risky. Uh, and, and especially if you're, um, you know, particularly sensitive, uh, if your self-esteem is, you know, particularly shaky, uh, if there's a history of mental illness in your family, you know, because they, apparently there's research that says psychedelics don't trigger psychosis or schizophrenia, but if it's latent, they can hasten the onset of it because of, you know, one way they're described is as non-specific or unspecific amplifiers. So they, um, they open things up. And if you don't know how to channel that, that can be pretty scary. It can open you up to just about any damn thing. Um, um, so they are uh, potentially risky to do that way. And, you know, this, I mentioned, you know, quite a while ago, this notion that um, McKenna said he thought the 60s were largely misplayed because people, the majority of people that took psychedelics didn't understand what they can really do, which is, in a sense, dissolve this sense of who you were that you had put together with all your thoughts, and you're so identified with it that that can be absolutely terrifying. 
And so um, you might think you're dying, you know. I've experienced that and been terrified by it. And I know others personally and by secondhand that have had that kind of experience. You might end up calling 911 um, because you're freaking out, you know. Um, it's what we used to call a bummer, a bad acid trip back in the day. They happened and they can potentially ruin lives. I mean, I don't want to make, you know, like a dramatic scare story out about it. It doesn't happen to a lot of people, but it, I know that it happened to some people that I knew from that, from the, that era, um, especially people who took a lot of acid in, in these kinds of circumstances. They got way, way, way too into their heads, into their strange thoughts and things like that. And, you know, my sister had a boyfriend when she was in college that was like that. And he essentially ended up on the streets of Toronto, you know, homeless. Um, and he was a brilliant guy. Uh, you know, he, he, he lost it. Um, I've seen people have these, you know, terrifying experiences. And so from my point of view, okay, let's put it this way, actually. If you do it without intention, particularly, if you just go, okay, I want to take some psilocybin and find this, what this stuff is about, you might have an amazing experience. It might be life-changing and life-informing. Great. But you also might bump into this ego dissolution factor, which might freak you out. And if you do it in a circumstance where there's protection for that, where there's some kind of guidance, there's a, let's just say, a better chance that it's going to go well or that you can go through that you know that for example um there's been some amazing work done at johns hopkins university uh, with psilocybin uh, several different studies that they did super carefully following all the proper protocols and all that kind of thing and one of them back in the early 2000s which got press even in like the new york times and all that positive press was when they did with uh, terminal cancer patients. And um, what they found was that uh, people, th those that had the most mystical experiences completely changed their attitude about their cancer and their whole attitude about their life altogether. But what they did was they prepared them properly. Mm -hmm. So they had two or three sessions beforehand um, in the room where they were going to be taking the medicine. So they were already comfortable in that space and they made the space they tried to make it more comfortable, you know, like put up wall hangings, flowers, whatever, you know, make it warm and safe. And so when you come into the experience, you're ready for what might happen. So if you bump into this fear, fear of letting go, fear of dying, as it were, um, what they've already told you is if you experience that, that's common. And what you need to do there is don't buy into any story about that. Just keep breathing and, you know, trust that it's going to be okay. Um, and so then you might have that experience, but then you can go through it and it'll change. Um, mm. So that's really important. I think for a lot of people that you just, you just upping the odds of a positive um, beneficial experience. If you do it in a properly cared for situation, and that can be a variety of things that could be, um, something as simple as a sitter. And there are now people getting trained to be sitters. Mm -hmm. um, and a sitter's job is basically just to keep you safe, you know, while yeah, you have, have your experience. I have somebody yeah. booked coming on who runs a school for sitters. Nice. Cool. Yeah, I'd like to hear that one. Um, 
So there's that level. And then the next level would be kind of a more active guide, which you might call a therapist. And the mm -hmm. therapist might be more involved. And that might depend on the dosage. Maybe you don't do quite as strong a dosage or different kinds of medicines like MDMA, for example, is really good for you know, working with a therapist because you can talk about it and that sort of thing. Or maybe you talk about it more with the therapist as you're coming off the real peak of a, of a stronger psychedelic, you go through it for a while, they leave you alone. Or maybe you just talk about it even in the peak to some degree as you get this amazing insight and you want to share it and so on. Um, so that's a more active, you know, kind of thing. So the, from the sitter to the more guide, you know, direct or more hands-on kind of guidance, you might say. And there's lots of different ways that people will do that. And then the other way would be in ceremony. Um, and ideally, that would be with somebody who has a lot of experience, who knows these medicines, knows the spirits behind them, knows how to protect people from any kind of negative energies like we were talking about some time ago there today. Um, knows the songs that call in healing spirits, you know, and that's real. Um, for example, I, I uh, did an ayahuasca. Uh, well, I, I went to a conference in in uh, Iquitos in the north of Peru a few years ago. And part of the conference was going out into the jungle and doing ceremonies with uh, local, uh, as they call them, ayahuasqueros, the ceremony uh, healers, leaders. And um, <clears throat> um, so if you don't, maybe I make a story out of this. You got time for a story? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. It might be instructive. <laughs> um, so I did three. I went to this one guy who was recommended, and he had his own center. It's called Niwe Rao. Um, and he was well-trained by one of the well-known people there. So he's very experienced, knew his stuff, and so on. And worked, there were two of them, him and his brother or cousin or somebody. So um, I did the first one with them, really liked the way they worked. And so I decided to do the next one with them as well three days later. That one was the most powerful ayahuasca experience I ever had. Normally, these guys start at 8, and by around 3 to 4 in the morning, you're ready to fall asleep, get 3-4 hours of sleep. Then they you know, convene around 8 in the morning and have a sharing session. So this one was so powerful that I never got a wink of sleep. It was just on right until the morning. Um, so then we had the sharing session, and... Uh, uh, I had planned to come back for the third one two days later, but I told the, 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 the ayahuasca that I wasn't going to come because I said, I think I just got six months worth of work here. To, you know, I don't need to come back right away. And he said, well, why don't you come back anyway? Even if you don't drink any medicine, I've got a song for you. Because I was telling him about what I thought my obstacles were and trusting the awakened state or whatever, you know. He said, I've got a song that would be appropriate for you. So just come back and you can sit with us. You don't have to take the medicine. So that was th Thursday morning. That night, for some reason, I got an amazing sleep. Ten hours of deep sleep uninterrupted and felt great on Friday morning. I thought, oh, okay, I am going to go back. And I might even drink some of the medicine. So I went back and I did drink some of the medicine, but it was about a third as much as the amount that I'd had two nights before that. So usually it's reached full peak by about an hour or so. So around about an hour, hour and a quarter, I was just feeling this really, really light buzz. It was like a really light cannabis high, but maybe a little more clear or something like that. And I thought, oh, that's lovely. You know, I'm, that's about all I'm up for tonight. You know, I'll get to sleep around midnight. I'll have a great sleep. That's fine. But at that point, the 
uh, ayahuascaro called everybody up individually to sit in front of them and they um, they light these um, South American tobaccos, they call them mapacho, and they use them as healing medicines and they blow smoke over your head and things like that. And then they sing you one of these songs called Icaros in Spanish. Um, so he did that for me and sent me back to my cushion on the opposite side of this maloca or yurt. So I get back there and like within a minute or two, literally within a minute or two, it went from almost not perceptible to about 80% as strong as the one I'd had two nights before on a third of the medicine, right? So the next morning we had the sharing session and I said to him, did that have something to do with your song that you sang? And he said, oh, you sure, sure did. He said, those songs are actually spirits and they come to me knowing because they're there, they're paying attention to what's going on in the room and that song will come in and go, I'm the song for this situation now. I'm the song for this person right now. So sing me now, right? So if you don't know, if you're the ceremony leader and you don't know that stuff, um, it's not necessarily dangerous, but you're certainly missing out on a huge part of what um, these medicines are capable of doing. If you're in communication with the spirit of that plant, mm-hmm. they all, I think almost all the indigenous healers would say that you have to know the spirit of the plants that you're working mm-hmm. with, you know? Yeah. So that's the other way to do it. And the other issue that people should pay attention to your listeners, perhaps if they are, um, maybe they're looking at doing ayahuasca because there's so many places you can do ayahuasca these days, you know, um, but haven't yet is, um, you really have to pay attention to who you're going to do this with. Um, and it's not a simple answer to say how to know that, but word of mouth is a good one. Um, if you can find somebody, meet somebody who's, um, sat with a particular person and, is really confident that that person is reliable, knows what they're doing, and um, ethically impeccable is an important part of that, you know, because there are some sexual predators out there. There are some power-hungry people out there. There's there charlatans, the people that, oh boy, I could make, you know, I mean, people are charging whatever it is, I don't know, $300 a night now, you know, for some of these ceremonies, $300 for five hours of work, you know, um, essentially, I mean, there's more to it you know, than that, but the ceremony itself may only last five or six hours and you're charging individuals 300 bucks and um, <clears throat> you might have 20 people in the room. Mm-hmm. What's 20 times 300, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, and, and there's no, you know, certifying body that says you can do this. Anyone can, you know, declare themselves a, an ayahuasca. So you do have to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That- I guess it's tricky in some places where people are just copying with their ceremonies and not really knowing the plant spirits. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I told you, like my generation, uh, you know, was doing a lot of different things than the generations around them and before them. And, you know, we're going back to the land was this big thing, you know, at the time. And so I lived up in the rural areas of, uh, of uh, British Columbia up here in Canada and, so there was all these people, a lot of them were Americans, actually. They were getting away from the cities. They were um, avoiding the draft, mm-hmm. the Vietnam draft and all this kind of thing. So they're coming in and, and setting up from nothing, you know, and they're learning to build cabins and, you know, all these different things. And so we had a sort of a saying, you know, done it once, you're an expert. 
um, because everybody around them didn't had never done it. So you know, if you learn how to properly you know make joints for a cabin or something, you know, then oh now you're the expert because you've done it once. Well, you know, I think that mentality is a little bit too prevalent in this kind of work sometimes. You know, if people they go down to South America, Peru for couple of months, they do five or six or seven or 10 ayahuasca ceremonies and they think, oh, okay, now I can, I could go back and lead ceremonies, you know, and I can make <laughs> some money and maybe I could get women to fall in love with me too, or at least have sex with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that could go wrong. Yeah. Man. So we got to wrap this up, but man, I would love to have you come back again to spend sure. some more time talking about the shamanic parts of this mm -hmm. and the plant spirit end of it because i find that really interesting mm -hmm. and i've read a little bit about that in your other book in the other book that you've put together the mm -hmm. cannabis book yeah um so i'd love to talk a lot more about that also if you want to come back sometime sure well as you can tell i do enjoy talking about these things <laughs> <laughs> it's like stop me <laughs> Yeah. That was great. That was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me today. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And uh, actually, and where can uh, people find you? Um, wrap it up? Yeah, good question. And by the way, I want to say that I appreciated your questioning. It was, you know, every question you asked was, uh, you know, quite appropriate, quite interesting and challenging. They were not easy questions, mm. too. You know, they weren't questions with a so that I could answer simply or even feel like I am a great authority on or anything, but certainly um, uh, stimulated my, you know, you say your, your podcast is about curiosity, but you stimulated mm -hmm. my curiosity to attempt to, you know, honor your questions in that way. Yeah. Wow. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah. So as far as finding me, um, well, I have a website. Uh, so uh, uh, com. And if it's somebody who's only listening and not seeing this printed out anywhere, that would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N, spelling of Stephen, as opposed to S-T-E-V-E-N. So it's Stephen, G-R-A-Y, Gray, Stephen Gray, Vision, uh, pardon me, yes, StephenGrayVision.com. Um, uh, and also that's, I have a YouTube channel where I also interview people in this field, also called Stephen Gray Vision. Steve, in that case, Stephen Gray is mushed together and vision is a separate word. And I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook page group called Stephen Gray, mushed together again, vision. And I got a little, I've started using Instagram a little, same handle, Stephen Gray or Stephen Gray vision. And just in the last week or two, I've been studying how to use TikTok because a couple of people told me that, uh, TikTok is getting a lot of attention. So I've just started to put, I've got two short little videos, one minute videos I've put up on uh, TikTok and intend mm. to do more all on these themes. And um, I think my handle is Stephen Gray on that one. It, you know, it's easy enough to find mm -hmm. me via, via Stephen Gray. And there's ways to contact me. Uh, the website has contact form and, um, you know, actually, I don't care. I mean, hopefully nobody's going to misuse this. I'll tell you my email if somebody's really sincere and wants to um, ask me a question about something or invite me to do another interview like this or whatever. Uh, so it's Stephen Gray Medicine at gmail.com. All same spelling of Stephen and Gray. Stephen Gray Medicine at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. 
So thanks for wow. asking about that. Yeah. I'll put the links to your website and to your YouTube channel mm-hmm. in the notes of this episode so my user, my listeners can find you. And also check out the books. The books are fantastic because you get a whole bunch of different perspectives on a topic. And not all of them are the same. And it, it's just they're, they're really, really interesting. And I definitely recommend them for anybody who's interested in the subject. Yeah. Like everybody who contributed, there's 25 contributors to this How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World book. Um, and they're all super knowledgeable, very insightful people. Some of them are quite well known in psychedelic fields like yeah. Dennis, Dennis McKenna, Chris Bache, Jamie Wheel, um, Chris Killam, Wade Davis, people like that. And there's almost half women, maybe 40% of them are women as well. And there's a uh, I also feel, I know we've got to wrap it up, but I'll just say super briefly um, that uh, I feel indigenous voices are really important in this transformational message. And so there are four or five people from indigenous backgrounds that give their perspective on the role of psychedelics in this consciousness uh, transformation journey we're on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you again. And hang on for one moment. Sure. I'm going to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on film that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. listen to today don't forget to rate review subscribe and share again thank you for listening to everything imaginable with gary cochilio